I want you to imagine that someone comes up to you and they ask you this question. Who is the God of the flood? And you have to describe him to them. So I'm going to give you a few seconds. I want you to think about it in your mind. Who would you say the God of the flood is? There are lots of stories that have come from all over the, the world about the flood. Just, they have just popped up in all these different cultures, which to me just reinforces the biblical account that the flood was global. But these ancient, ancient mythology stories talk about, they're a little bit different, but there's one thing they all have in common. They all talk about a god or gods who is angry. The most famous one of these is the Gilgamesh epic, which is a Babylonian story, and it tells about gods who are angry at each other, they're bickering and they're mad because of the people, because they're noisy and they're just being annoyed with them, and they want to destroy them. But one of these gods feels bad for the humans, and so he tells Utnapishtim, who is the hero of the story, tells him to build a boat and get in it. And so Utnapishtim builds this boat, and then he puts his family in it, and the construction workers who worked on this boat get in as well. As soon as they get in, the flood begins. But the flood is created by these different gods. So one of them creates the lightning, and the other one the thunder, and another one the water that comes from below, and one the rain, and another one the wind. But as these gods are creating this flood, they start being afraid themselves. And so they run off into heaven, and they just cower in a corner, it says, all of them crying because they're afraid of what they created. And then, after the water subsides, they come back down. And now they're mad at each other again because they realize that humans have survived. What about our God? The God of the Bible. Does he resemble a story like that? Does he fit into that description? Is he a God who is angry and vindictive and destructive? Well, the truth is that there are some people who believe that. They believe that the God of the Old Testament, not just the flood, is a God who just kills people at whim and destroys them whenever he possibly can. Is that true? Is that the God of the flood? Or is there a different picture of God that's in this story? Well, we're going to look at it. And I want to invite you to go to Genesis chapter 6. That is where we will spend most of our time because that is the chapter that describes the most about who God is. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. There are many theories that people have proposed regarding the identities of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They, some of them go as far as to say that these are fallen angels who are procreating with females, with women of the human race. 
But there's only one explanation that fits the context, and that's what we want. Every single time, we need to look at what the Bible is talking about, and then we need to fit it in the Bible, not just somewhere out here, some of our ideas. And so what is right before the story of the flood? There are two genealogies. The one is in chapter 4, the family of Cain, and then chapter 5, the whole chapter, is the family of Adam, which is carried on by Seth's lineage. Cain's family begins with verse, chapter 4, verse 16, and it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Until this point, until the flood, the people had access to the Garden of Eden. And scholars believe that because of the terminology that is used throughout the Bible, it's very likely that the sacrifices and worship that people did before the flood, they did it right at the entrance to the, the Garden of Eden. They couldn't get in, but they could go right to it. And so Cain does not want to be in the presence of God. And because he doesn't want to be in the presence of God, he moves as far away from the Garden of Eden as he possibly can. Because he does not want to be reminded that God is real. Isn't that how it works? If you can convince yourself that God is not real, then you don't really have to live for him. And then the genealogy just kind of spirals until we get to Lamech, who is the seventh in position from Cain, and he's, his life is characterized as one of incredible violence, where I'm pretty sure the people around him were afraid of him, and including his wives. And then we get to the second genealogy, which is the genealogy of the family of Adam. And this one is really interesting. When I was studying these two genealogies, I texted Pastor Ted and I said, you know, I should have really done a sermon just on the genealogies. They are fascinating. And he texted me back and said, well, in 25 years, when you preach through the Genesis again, you can do that. And I said, okay, I will do that. So in 25 years, you and I have a date. If we're still around. <laughs> so book of chapter 5, the book of genealogy, it says, of Adam. What is interesting about this genealogy? It has a pattern. It always starts out with a name, and then it says this person lived this many years, then had a son, and then lived all these years, and he died. And each one is exactly the same way, except for one. And we think that, well, okay, why does it say that he died? Because it's redundant. There's no other genealogy that does that. We know that these people died. They're not alive. But it's there for a reason, to contrast between the one person who does not die and everybody else who does. And that is Enoch, and he's also the seventh in the lineage of Adam. And it says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's one other thing I have to mention, though, in this genealogy. And that is the name Methuselah. Methuselah is known because he was the oldest person that has ever lived. But that is not the thing that I want to point you to. Methuselah, the name Methuselah, has different ways of translating it. But one of those possibilities is Matu means his death and Selah means will come or will send. 
So if we put those two together, it could say, at his death, it will come, or at his death, he will send, okay? Something in that sense. So what will come at his death? Well, let me tell you that Methuselah dies the exact same year that the flood comes. To me, that's not a coincidence. God knows the story, and he has put it all together. And then this genealogy ends with Noah. And for him, it also doesn't say, and he died, because it says that all the way at the end of chapter 9, where it says he lived all these years, and then he died. And then in between that story, that genealogy is inserted, this flood story. And so just looking at that background, we know that the sons of God in these two verses refer to the family of Adam, and the daughters of man refer to the family of Cain. And these guys start intermarrying. The sons of God came from families who loved God. They were devoted to him. And these kids probably, if it was today, would have gone through Christian schools. Their parents would have taught them about God. And yet, when they grew up, they chose women over God. We all have a choice, don't we? But not only do they, do they choose a woman for themselves that is beautiful, this verse is saying they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. This is referring to polygamy, and polygamy was started by the family of Cain. Right away, pretty much. These guys took whoever they wanted, also. And so soon enough, the pattern emerges that the family of Adam is starting to resemble the family of Cain more than resembling God. So let's go to verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. My spirit, the Holy Spirit has been present from the very beginning, has been working on people's hearts from the very start. But it says, my spirit will not strive. What does that word mean? It comes from the word to judge. So you could translate this sentence as, my spirit will not judge man forever. Well, what does that mean? Today, when we think of a judge, we think of someone who pronounces a sentence, someone who we've done, a person has done something bad and they get condemned or sometimes they get acquitted. In the ancient mind, especially in the Hebrew mind, that is not what judgment meant. A judge was also a defense attorney for this person. And it was his job to be on the side of the condemned and to make sure to do everything possible to help this person and to save them. So primary meaning of judgment in the Bible is to save, to vindicate, to justify. And that's what God is constantly trying to do. So we could say that God is saying, I want to judge in their favor. I want to save them. I want to justify them. But I can't because they don't want me. 
And yet, God says, I cannot give up on them. And so, it says, yet I will give them 120 more years. Maybe during that time, something will happen. And he knows that it will not happen because he knows everything. But he's still acting from the heart. But he does not want to lose them. He loves them. And so he's giving them another 120 years and sends Noah to preach during that time. But then we'll drop down to verse 5 because this is what it's talking about, what happened after those 120 years. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did things get better? It says continually, all the time, their thoughts were evil. Even their motivation and intentions, even if they did something good, the motivations came from evil. And then we'll drop down to verses 11 and 12, which describes a little bit more what was going on at this time. It says, the earth also was shachat. And I'm going to give you that word because I want you to notice how many times it appears. So the earth also was shachat, corrupt, before God, and the earth was filled with violence. It says it wasn't just there was violence once in a while somewhere. It was saturated with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was shachat, for all flesh had shachat, corrupted their way on the earth. And then we keep going with verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will shachat them with the earth. The reason I wanted to give you that word is because I wanted you to notice that even though it is the same word, it is translated differently because it means both, both things. It means to corrupt and it also means to destroy. So what God is saying is he's saying, I will shachat what has already been shachat. I will destroy what has already been destroyed by the humans. They are the ones who destroyed everything. So God is going to come and upheave what was already done. Now I want us to go back to verse 6, which is where I believe we see the most clearly who this God of the flood is. So verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord was sorry. But this is not just I'm walking down the street and I bump into someone and I say, Oh, I'm sorry, pardon me. That's not the word that's used there. The word there is deep sorrow. God has deep sorrow in his heart. Why? Because he only has a few of them left. He has lost the rest because they have chosen Satan's side. And then it keeps going and says, he was grieved in his heart. And that word, you could say, okay, it is, once again, it's redundant because he already said that he was sorrowful. But no, this word means something deeper than just grief. The word there is atzav. And I want to show it to you in a different verse. In chapter 3, verse 16. So the word is atzav. 
And I'll just insert it in there. This is where God is speaking to the woman. In chapter 3, verse 16. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In atzav, you shall bring forth children. In pain. This word does not just mean sorrow, me being sad. It means God is in pain. He's in pain because of what is going on on earth. And his heart is breaking. And I imagine that if we could go to heaven at that moment and we could just see into the throne room, we would see God, the Father, and Jesus and Holy Spirit maybe pacing the room back and forth with their hands clenched and sighs. You could hear those. Maybe some grunting. And if at just the right time you looked in at one of them, you would see a form that was hunched over, shoulders shaking, because he was sobbing. A couple months ago, we had a prayer meeting here at church, and there was a bunch of us that came. It was a special time of prayer. And Mr. Standish was there, James Standish, and he asked the question, for everyone to share. And the question was, if there was one thing you could ask of God and you knew that he would answer it, what would that be? And then we went around the circle. And every single parent in that room said, I want my children to be in heaven with me. That's who God is. He loves us so much more then our parents can even love us. And we sometimes think that God is just this magician who just waves a wand or pulls out something out of a hat, and he has no feelings. God feels everything deeply, and he cares whether you choose him or not. He cares about whether we are in heaven or not. But, verse 8 starts with a but. There is hope in a hopeless situation with God. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it describes him and it says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God the same description that was used for Enoch. The only two people in the Bible that it says that about. I was doing an interview once when I was in the seminary. I wasn't done with the seminary yet, and so it was just an interview that I wanted to try. It was with a real conference, though. And I don't remember anything they asked me during the, the interview, but I remember one question. And I never forgot that question. The question was, if you died and someone was creating a tombstone for your grave, what would you want it to say on that tombstone? And I didn't really have to think about it much. I knew right away. And I told them what I would want it to say is, she walked with God. To me, that is the greatest thing that someone can be described as. And I still want the same thing. 
to be known as someone who walked with God. But there's something else that I want to point you to in verse 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first time in the Bible that the word grace is found. In a story of the flood where we think it's a story about destruction. But no, it is not a story about destruction. It is a story about grace. And you say, why is that? Well, let's think about it. Why does God have to destroy the earth? Well, let's look at the pattern. It has been a little bit over 2,000 years until this point, and we get to the time of the flood, and evil has pretty much won on this planet. How many people does God have left? One family. One family. And if we look at the pattern that I just told you, what would happen if God said, let's just give them more and more years? What would happen? Would it get better or worse? Worse. It would get worse. God would lose every single person. Why does God have to destroy at that moment? Because he has to intervene or otherwise there will be no one else for Jesus to come for. If someone came up to me and asked me, who is the God of the flood? This is what I would tell them. The God of the flood is the God who pursues the human race. He loves us so much that he intervened at that time so that you and I can be in heaven. Yes, he deals with evil and I want him to. I don't want to live on this planet for the rest of my life. But he does everything because he cares about the people he created. And because he pursued the human race during the flood, you can be sure that he pursues you right now. He is still running after you. He is still running after me, and he tries everything he can so that we follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being the God who pursues us. Thank you for being the God who runs after us and towards us always. Thank you for what you have done at the time of the flood, so that we can be with you in heaven. I pray that you help us to also give ourselves to you, so that you don't just pursue us and we become like the family of Cain. 
work in our hearts and lives so that we live for you, that we walk with you, and that we are remembered as the kind of people who walked with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.